It's Wednesday, August 6th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, today I'm going to demonstrate the news hinge. The news hinge, in fact, more than demonstrate, I think I'm actually inventing it. I'm definitely debuting it. So you know about the Segway, not the scooter, the communications technique. What the news hinge is, is a two-sided Segway. You segue out of one story into the news hinge, and then you segue out of the news hinge into an unrelated story. Today's news hinge, playing the role of the news hinge today, is the failed merger of Sprint and T-Mobile. But we start with the failed merger of Time Warner and AT&T. The merger is off. It is off. Wall Street didn't like it. Time Warner fought it. Rupert Murdoch showed some, let's say, maturity as an octogenarian. He let the dog die. They won't be uniting Time Warner and 21st Century Fox after all. So poor Rupert is left alone to defend himself against the impending cable juggernaut that will one day most likely emerge from Comcast and Time Warner Cable. 21st Century Fox has fewer buyers for its product. He won't be able to dictate the terms to that cable juggernaut. So as compared to the coming Comcast cable colossus, Fox is looking a lot less like Hannity and more like Combs. In other failed merger talks, see right there, that's called the news hinge. All right, here it comes. In other failed merger talks, Sprint won't be merging with T-Mobile. Sprint Owned by the Japanese firm SoftBank is the third largest cell phone company. Wanted to buy number four, T-Mobile. Sprint is seen as something of a mess. T-Mobile is pretty much admired for the way it does business. They won't be merging. Did you know that on Wall Street, they were talking about this deal using code names? T-Mobile was called Tiger. Sprint was Swan. The Hawk, that was SoftBank. And Deutsche Bank, which was also involved, was Dove. So in this case, what just happened was Dove flew as Swan failed to gobble Tiger. Somewhere, the Hawk cries into the night air. In other news involving code names, and that's why it's a news hinge, Tony Bosch, the founder of the Florida anti-aging clinic Biogenesis, turned him into authorities. By the way, when we say Florida anti-aging clinic, that is sports media code, like confirmed bachelor was gossip columnist code in the 50s, right? In this case, it's code for a purveyor of human growth hormone. That's not the code I'm talking about. Here's the code I'm talking about. Biogenesis, allegedly, in some cases, confirmedly supplied performance-enhancing drugs to major leaguers, and they kept alleged with code names of all the major leaguers. So Melky Cabrera was Mostro, Cesar Cirillo was Al Capone, Nelson Cruz was Mohammed, other nicknames of dopers, Samurai, Yukon, Felix the Cat, and Kakike. He was A-Rod, allegedly. But confirmed is the news hinge. Segway in, segway out, use it, don't lose it. They say news is dying and print is dead. Maybe the news hinge can save it. Developing. In the spiel today, looking at those who defend the cops who killed Staten Island man Eric Garner, the medical examiner says it's a chokehold. One new tactic just debuted, which is claiming there's no such thing as a chokehold. But first, Lennon McCartney, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, Wordsworth and his sister, also Wordsworth, a deep dive into the dynamics of famous creative pairs. Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs is by Joshua Wolf Shank. Thanks for coming on, Josh. 
Yeah, my pleasure. I think you write more about Lennon and McCartney than any other creative pair, and there are good reasons for this. Among them, they're great, but also everyone knows the songs, so right, if you wrote about Candor and Ebb or Lerner and Lowe, we'd be saying, wait, which one wrote Camelot yeah. or whatever, right? But the other amazing thing about, or among the amazing things about Lennon and McCartney is it just seems way too coincidental that the two greatest songwriters could grow up in such humble circumstances, like less than a couple miles from each other in England. But I guess a big point of your book is it's not a coincidence. It's this alchemy of two. Yeah. You know, Lennon McCartney really surprised me because you know they were the they were the first example I thought of I, I literally within moments of having the idea to study this thing what we call chemistry or synergy I thought of the two of them and I imagined the space between them and I thought what was it between them and could I write a kind of biography of that space looking at them and, and many other examples but then I thought Lennon, clearly those guys can't be characters in my book because I'm sure that that's been done. It's just it's the iconic creative relationship of our time. Yeah. And the more I got into it, the more I saw it, the story really hadn't been told. We have John Lennon biographies. We have Paul McCartney biographies. We have these tomes on the Beatles. But no one had ever actually looked at the story of their relationship, which is where the real magic was Jeff Emmerich, who was their longtime producer, said, I always thought the artist was John Lennon and Paul McCartney, which is a great way to say it. I think that the word alchemy is an apt word because it connotes magic, but also the creation of something that's more than the sum of its parts. And in Lennon-McCartney, we have that. If you could put your finger on what's that extra something that they both, that by working together, they create. Well, so the magical combination in this case, and there, there are many other partners like it, is between one guy, John Lennon, who was an associative thinker, a, a poet at heart, who was always looking down, looking to break down artistic barriers. He didn't like to be confined, and he had this swagger and bravado. And even at 17, he was on stage you know, vamping to lyrics to very well-known songs, just making them up because he... He thought, you know, why not? Why do it the usual way? And then you have Paul McCartney, who is extremely meticulous, pays very close attention to form. He knows how to build structure. And even when he was a teenager, he could perfectly mime Little Richard and Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins. And so this relationship between the person who creates form, the structured mind, and the person who's really looking to just punch his hand through that wall, the disordered mind, is extremely potent. It's very much along the lines of what we think of as the Apollonian and the Dionysian. And those two guys brought it together. Of the other great pairings, which fit into this model, the structured and the chaotic? You know, one of my favorite stories is Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo. Of course, we don't think of... Theo is a partner to his brother. We think of him as a supporter if we think of him at all. But they were very much entwined from the beginning of Vincent's art career all the way to the end. They both believed that they had co-created those works, even though Vincent clearly had a role, you know, being the artist. And Theo's role was supporting him, you know, paying the bills, aesthetic guidance, interfacing with the official world. He was an art dealer in Paris. So you have the kind of classic Mr. Inside, that's Theo, putting up with the daily indignities, bureaucracy, and earning a living. And you have the classic Mr. Outside, you know, throwing barbs and, and challenging the establishment. 
but they're united by this common yearning. They had a they had a shared vision of what art could do, what it should look like, but also how it could enliven communities. They both had this sort of sacred ideal that they were pursuing. But this isn't the only way that pairings can really work and create that alchemy, because you also write, in fact, you have a few categories, like uh, director and star is one. What are some of the other ones? Yeah, so there are three kind of core archetypes, and we're used to thinking about personality types. You know, you take the Myers-Briggs and you and you know who you are. Um, but I'm interested in this idea that there are these recurring archetypes for pairs. And the first one is the director and the star. So you have the, the guy who's on stage, who we typically know, and then you have the person who's off stage, who we typically don't. Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy is a great example. We really think of the civil rights movement as being all about MLK. And he was the guy who went in front of the cameras. He was smooth and polished and really refuted a lot of stereotypes of black Americans in those days. But from the very beginning, from the Montgomery bus boycotts and all the way through Memphis, Ralph Abernathy was always at his side, always sharing hotel rooms. And every time Martin Luther King spoke virtually, Ralph Abernathy spoke too. We we don't have recordings of them, and they, but he, he was there to, to rouse the crowd. He was a very funny guy, very earthy. He would lay out the facts and, and get people riled up, and then Martin Luther King would come and you know deliver his speech, which was much more high-minded and underlaid by the philosophy of nonviolence, but they were a brilliant partnership. That's a great example of director and star. What about, I think you have, liquid and container? Liquid and container is a, a metaphor for what we've talked about as order and disorder, the person who's trying to break down barriers and the person who's trying to build them up. The other classic illustration of this is the double act in comedy. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks with the 2,000-year-old man or Martin and Lewis, you know, one guy is just sort of the, the very picture of tranquility and calm and asking the calm, naive question. And the other guy is the sort of the mad, you know, herky-jerky comic. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of, you know, Mel Brooks in that situation as the funny guy and who's the guy who's doing all the work, and we tend to think of Carl Reiner, you know, who's the straight man in that situation as, you know, they even at times call him the wood. You know, he's the he's like he's nothing, but it turns out that that person is very often running the act, and it's really the questions and the structure that gives the space to the wilder one to do his work, which is very much the case with Lennon and McCartney, too. It's funny that you bring up that in the uh, context of comedy and how the the wild, how we sometimes get who really is the straight man and who's in charge. You know, the Smothers brothers are like that, right? So Tom Smothers is supposed to be the wacky one who's off the wall. And Dick Smothers is supposed to be the straight guy. But it's Tom Smothers who actually ran the business and was much more responsible in real life than Dick Smothers, which is, if you know about what you're talking about, actually not that surprising psychologically. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. We very often identify with the mad artist. You know, Apple had that very, you know, successful uh, ad campaign. You know, here's to the crazy ones. Yeah. But if you go through that, every single person they are listing for Hitchcock and Gandhi and John Lennon himself, you know, they only did their great work in connection to lucid sanity and and someone who knew about structure and order. That dialectic is just really critical to grasp if you're someone who wants to make good work yourself. And what about the other big major category, dreamer and doer? 
Yeah, so the dreamer is sort of the person that we tend to think of as traditionally creative, you know, the visionary, the person who has a lot of ideas and literally big dreams. The duo that made South Park, Trey Parker, is very much the dreamer, and, and people will look at him and say, well, you know, he really is the creative one, in quotes. And then you look at a lot of what Matt Stone does, providing structure and acting as Trey's muse, and people say, well, you know, he's just sort of enabling Trey. But it's critical to understand that creativity is not coming up with a new idea. Creativity is when a, when a new idea or a good story, a new product, actually is brought into form and it is, is brought into reality. And so that doer always has to be there. Even for, you know, people who are the most wildly brilliant. You know, Trey could have worked with just about anybody, but he's he's stuck close to this great partner who has kept him safe and working and and protected. Those guys also have a, a whole other dynamic as comics playing off each other. Matt Stone is not just the doer type. Wow. So part of your book in defining how these great tandems come about is knocking down the idea of the uh, the solo act in a way, how there is this idea and we elevate the idea of the person who does it alone. That happens a lot less than we think, huh? If you run down the list of our iconic lone geniuses, you can just knock them off one by one. You know, we've mentioned MLK, we've mentioned Van Gogh, there's also Gandhi and Pablo Picasso and Warren Buffett. I mean, it's just, there's always something behind the scenes there. Yeah, and you have some stuff I never knew about, about uh, Wordsworth and his sister, who had a dual relationship that actually subsided when Wordsworth got married. Yeah, you know, one of the qualities of these relationships is that when they really uh, become forged, there is a sacred uh, connection between the two people that shuts out the rest of the world. And one of the dominant ways that the partnerships get interrupted is when some other person comes in and there's suddenly a third kind of as a wedge between them. So, yes, in that case, Wordsworth got married and, you know, his sister Dorothy was no longer his primary relator. And she, for her, for her it was a kind of funeral. And she really withdrew uh, dramatically and then didn't surface again until her brother died years later, which is a marvelous story, but more basic to the point, when you look at Wordsworth's most iconic poetry, very often, not just the ideas, but the very language was drawn from his sister's journals and from uh, experiences they had together. And she was glad for him to be the poet. She was glad for him to have the public role. And that's fine, too. That's A lot of times that is the case. The producer doesn't want attention. The COO is very happy to be in the shadows behind the CEO a lot of the time. But it just it really hobbles us when we neglect to record it and make note of it as we try to understand this creative work in the first place. Are any of the types of pairs, the archetypes, like Dreamer and Doer, more prone to breakup? Lennon-McCartney did. And if you know about them, you could see why. You could see the tensions. It's often said they were just so different. Are any of these more tempestuous, more likely to uh, not be able to sustain? Some kind of tension is at the heart of all these relationships from the very beginning because you have two people who they need to be aligned around their values and their interests, but they need to be profoundly different, like, almost like they're different species. That tension, which is a huge part of the initial electricity and excitement, can really build you know, into outright conflict and rivalry, which itself can be 
creative so long as it's contained. The big question is, you know, can you, do you, is there a, a strong enough container around what you're doing? The big story at the end of relationships is not so much interpersonal. It's much more about the context. Lennon and McCartney fell apart when their context fell apart. One of the beautiful aspects of the Matt Stone, Trey Parker story is they have got a rock-solid team around them and have had for decades. They've been working with the same lawyer. They've been working with the same director of their studio. They've been working with the same animation director. So there's enormous stability in the context around them, and that allows them to do their thing and to have their trouble. And, you know, those guys go at each other. With John Lennon and Paul McCartney, you know, all of a sudden they had to, you know, what's the structure of our holding company and all these record deals and things that they were not equipped to deal with at all. So long as their tension was contained to the studio and to the rooms where they would repair to write, they did beautifully. Had they gotten together to work the the 70s, they would have done beautifully again there too. It was all this other stuff that just, it was like a tsunami that that washed on shore and, and carried them away. Joshua Wolfshank, author of Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. It's been, been a lot of fun. And now the spiel. A little about myself and my family. I had an uncle who was a policeman. I had a cousin who was a policeman. I have a cousin who's a policeman. I had a cousin who was a policewoman. I'm pro-cop. Well, pro-good cop. And most of the cops I've known in my life have been good cops. But when video of the homicide of Eric Garner emerged, I said to myself, this seems to be the most clear-cut example I've ever seen of unnecessary and excessive police force used to kill a person, a person who didn't seem to pose any danger to the police officers. The video, the sound of which can be heard here, and we won't play too much because it can be disturbing and you may have already seen it. I'm minding my business. Please just leave me alone. I told you the last time. Please just leave me alone. Video isn't always dispositive as it seems, but this video seemed to capture a lot of the confrontation, escalation, and incapacitation of Eric Garner. The last words we hear are Garner saying, I can't breathe. Just a few days ago, the New York Medical Examiner's office used the word chokehold in its report and blamed the hold, in part, in killing Garner. Yes, Garner was obese. Yes, Garner had asthma. But Garner lived every day as an obese man with asthma. He died one day as an obese man with asthma who was placed in a chokehold. Patrick Lynch, the NYPD's union president, begs to differ. There is an attitude by the criminal element that resisting arrest is condoned and not taken seriously. This was not a chokehold. This was not a chokehold. 
I suppose vehement defense of membership is one interpretation of the job of the boss of a union, specifically the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, as horrible irony would have it. But I just know that there are many policemen who are sickened by this video, who blame the officers for at least a poor decision, and maybe worse, and who instead of saying, well, if I were accused, I'd want the union boss to back me to the hilt, instead, they think that Patrick Lynch being incendiary and gratuitously attacking Al Sharpton does nothing to protect good, honest cops. Time was, not more than two decades ago, that there would be clear battle lines over this case. If Rudy Giuliani were mayor, it would be hard to see him sitting next to Al Sharpton, guaranteeing a full investigation, speaking words of sympathy to the victim, as Bill de Blasio has done. And the ideological camps would fall right in place. But this time, quite interesting, it hasn't happened. The day after the choking came to light, I went to The Blaze, which is Glenn Beck's website. The write-up of the incident was pretty straightforward, and the comments section, with a few exceptions, didn't rush to defend the cops. Yes, there were a few, you resist arrest, you're asking for it type columns, but mostly, commentators called this murder. The incident did seem to fit into a mistrust of the government worldview that's frequently expressed on The Blaze, but it was surprising how animus towards the deceased was not expressed. I checked back with The Blaze today. They've been covering this story pretty straightforward, and the comment section today still mostly decries police brutality. There are a few dissenters, but it really reads no differently from the comment section of Newsday or the Daily News. Another prominent conservative outlet, the National Review, ran A.J. Delgado's take on Eric Garner's death. It was titled, It's Time for Conservatives to Stop Defending Police. Subhead, there is nothing conservative about government violating the rights of its citizens. Goes on. Conservatives are rightly proud to have supported police officers doing their jobs at times when progressives were on the other side. But it's time for conservatives' unconditional love affair with the police to end. Let's get the obligatory disclaimer out of the way. Yes, many police officers do heroic works. And yes, many are upstanding individuals who serve the community bravely and capably. But respecting police officer work means being willing to speak out against civil liberty breaking thugs who shrug their shoulders after brutalizing citizens. That in the National Review. This all is not to say, however, that Eric Garner doesn't have his posthumous attackers. In today's New York Post, Bob McManus had an op-ed titled, Chokehold Victim Now Victimizes NYPD an Entire City. Chokehold is in quotes because Bob McManus argues both that Garner wasn't placed in a chokehold, but also, more existentially, that there's no such thing as a chokehold. He writes, Chokehold. It's not clear what that even means. Not in a legal sense. Well, let me try to define it for you, Bob. A hold that chokes choke to cut off the flow of air or blood. If you need an illustration, well, those officers' arms around Eric Garner's neck serves pretty well. McManus's argument is so offensive, dehumanizing, and off-base that the Post is forced to embellish it with evidence that very much undermines his case. Embedded in the web version of the op-ed is this video taken while Garner was on the ground but not yet dead. Whoever's taking the video narrates. Now they're trying to get him an ambulance. After they harassed him, slammed him down, NYPD, you understand? NYPD harassing people for no reason. He didn't do anything at all. To further strangle Bob McManus by his own words, which is what McManus is asserting about Eric Garner, consider this paragraph, quote, 
Sometimes the victims aren't so much victims as they are instigators of incidents which lead to unhappy outcomes, which indeed likely never would have happened if they had simply obeyed the law. If you have to write about the death of a human by deploying the phrase unhappy outcome, maybe it's not just perception that's against you. Maybe it's a set of facts that leaves a huge and heretofore unprecedented swath of civilized society profoundly disgusted. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is known by the codename Mabel Enabler. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, goes by Honcho. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can listen in SoundCloud. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Up for discussion today, proposed flags of Northern Ireland. Twitter feed is Slate Gist. Email the gist at Slate.com. The Gist, a.k.a. The Grist, a.k.a. Gusty Mike and the Hurricanes, a.k.a. Unspecified Lorenzo Mysterioso Talk Product, a.k.a. Project Blather, would all like to say... Thanks for listening.